0: Welcome to Ignite Agility Collaborative Leadership Team's video and audio podcast. Josh recently came to one of our certified Scrum Master Courses, and he and I found that we both share a passion for theories of adult education or how to teach adults anything. So we're going to be talking about that today. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button or like and comment. So Josh, why don't we just get right into it? How did you get into this adult learning stuff?
1: Especially coming from a military background, the military really they don't they're not as concerned with your job as they are concerned with your talents because often the people you work with aren't the people that hired you. Uh, you know when you go to sign up for the military, you go through a recruiter and then you go to basic training and then you get to your unit, and then those are your coworkers. And they don't know you're coming and they don't know you from Adam. And they have to figure out how to use a diverse set of skills to get their job done. Me, having a college background, but not being an officer going on enlisted side, I kind of had a talent for taking notes and learning things and then being able to translate that down to a a different set of learners because you get a mix of people um, in the military from a diverse background. And as I did it more and realized I had a talent for it, they just kept sending me to more and more classes. (laughs) When I left the military, uh, I just trying to find my way... I started down this educational pathway. So I went and got my master's degree in education and I started training in the civilian side. And I found that there was a lot of similarities to the to adult learning. Adult learners are pretty much uh, the same group no matter where you go, whether it's the military, civilian, whether it's McDonald's or Burger King or a bank or wherever you find yourself. Uh, adults are adults and you know they have special needs when it comes to learning.
0: I always tell my son's teacher, we do the same thing for a living, that my kids are just bigger. <laughs> I'm, I'm busy teaching
1: adults. <laughs>
0: so certainly that applies in the Scrum and Agile world as well. Absolutely.
1: So there is a, an increase in our knowledge in the last couple of years on how we learn. A lot of it was through trial and error, and, and we wrote it down. And if you think about it, if we go back to Socrates, right, if we go way, way back, they were struggling with how to teach and how to learn we did it through trial and error. But now that we're able to do things like brain scans and MRIs and really take a deeper dive into the mechanics of the human brain, we're able to kind of take a deeper dive and realize this works, but why? Like, Mm -hmm. why does this work? When you get into things like brain plasticity in children versus adults, um, when when you can break the brain apart into different structures, it's a really neat field because we can get into the mechanics of it. We can take that deeper dive and it helps us connect better and faster so that we're not wasting time because we know that's one thing we just can't do. The first thing I always like to do is talk about how the brain learns because the brain is an interesting thing. Everybody's brain is the same. We have neurons that fire, and we walk, and we talk, and we learn. And But the way that those neurons are structured, those neural pathways, they're different in everybody. They fire differently. And so, while everybody's brain is the same. Everybody's mind is different. And the older you get, the more apparent that becomes. So, when we look at how the brain learns, it really comes down to two key structures in the brain. And I want to tip my hat to Dr. Britt Andrietta. She is really the foremost expert in this field. And if you have any interest in this whatsoever, I would say go watch her stuff. She's fantastic at this. The hippocampus and the amygdala are really what tie these things together. And it's because it lives on both sides, both hemispheres of the brain. It, it really goes into our senses. So the amygdala really brings in our information, your sights, your smells, your sounds. All of those things are how we interact with the world, and therefore, that's how we learn. It takes that information in, and it puts it into the hippocampus. And if you think about it, your hippocampus is your data center. It's your data drive, your hard drive you really have to focus to turn that hard drive on. To hit the save button, you have to focus. And this is where these two things are tied together. Because in a calm state like we are right now, the, there's no sirens firing, there's no alarms. So information flows freely through that amygdala into that hippocampus. But if you trigger someone's emergency responses, their fight, flight, or freeze, the data drive doesn't get turned on you're not focused. And I use this when I'm teaching new trainers, because sometimes people go up to somebody when they're in the middle of something and they're trying to get all this work done. And then they try to teach them something and then they don't understand why they didn't learn it. And it's like, well, where was their focus? <laughs> I've even had people who've come through my class and say, I never realized that I wasn't focusing. Like, I didn't realize my focus was getting pulled. And as the world be- has become more complicated, more digital, as there's more distractions, it's harder and harder to maintain that focus, which means it's harder to learn. You know, as we have a thousand emails and 17 mm-hmm. conference calls and all of these things going on, like, how do we? maintain that focus so we can turn our data drive on and we can start storing information so we can learn
0: well and even a step back with where you started was the neuroplasticity just isn't there so we're already kind of at a disadvantage where you know if we were teaching this kind of new way of working to kids they might absorb it a little quicker than an adult might and so now if you add all this other stuff to it <laughs> and we're interrupting their focus or where was their focus when we're trying to teach them something, wow, Absolutely. we're already starting out behind the eight ball.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and it really comes down to, you know, kids, kids, when they're learning, they have all these, the same chemicals in our brain, but the brain lets them flow more freely. Um, and we'll get into this when we get into multitasking, but... You know, the brain tries to hold those chemicals as you get older um, because it, it's want, trying to reserve them for when it knows it needs them. For brains, the, you know, kids' brains, they're just willy-nilly all over the place. Uh, but that's good because they can learn very quickly. I'm amazed. Uh, you know, I have two seven-year-olds, and I'm just amazed at the stuff that they pick up on. And I, so a lot of times I don't even think they are learning, and then they surprise me because they'll remember something or they'll, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll come back and they'll be like, hey, remember that time? And I'm like, wow, I can't believe you remember that. Right. Um they're just a lot more open by maintaining that focus, by turning on that record, right? We can record data, but do you know about how long people can record data? Like how, how long until the hippocampus kind of gets full? Any guesses? It 10 will minutes. align with scrum. 10 minutes, minutes is a good answer. 15 <laughs> minutes is the right answer. So, so, and it's funny because when you think about it, why do we do huddles for 15 minutes? Why are, why are, you know, the, the quick meetings always fifteen minutes. Why do we time box them in for fifteen minutes because we know it works, but why does it work? Well, mm-hmm. Why is because that's how long our data drive holds information before it has to decide what to do with it? You know adults are very discriminate in what they learn like and it's all based on you know two key components it's the what's in it for me and why am I here and I often teach new trainers if you don't cover within the first ten seconds of a class, why is somebody here and what's in it for them you're not going to get their buy-in, which means they're not going to pay attention. And 15 minutes is always the go-to because that's how long your data drive can hold, you know, 15, 20 minutes on average. And then the brain has to kind of take a break and it has to say, okay, of the last 15 minutes that I've been paying attention, what do I need to keep and what do I need to get rid of? Because our brains have filters and they don't take in everything. We tune things out Um I just had a discussion with my girlfriend the other day. She's like, you realize you ignore me a lot. I said, do I? <laughs> like, uh, do, do I? Because I, don't, I don't, can't remember a time where I've ignored you. She's like, five minutes ago, I asked you a question. And it's like, you never even heard me. I was like, well, what was I doing? She's like, you were messing with something on your phone. Oh, I was really focused on that. And my brain just tuned you out. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if you can blame your brain on that. I'm like, well, let's do an experiment. I, Being in the infantry, being in the combat arms, you deal with a lot of information when you're getting shot at, when bombs are going off, when you're in these complex you know, environments. And your brain has to develop a filter so you can do your job, so you can still direct traffic, so you can accomplish the mission. So my brain, through my time in the service and through my time deployed, just is extremely good at filtering out things if I am extremely focused. And I said, let's do an experiment. Let's come up with a key phrase or key word that my brain will pick up on so that you can get my attention. But watch, make sure I I look at you. The term we come up with was, hey, babe, if we want somebody's attention and they're doing something, we'll say, hey, babe, immediately that started working and that started to that experience that evidence started to get her to be a believer in the fact that i wasn't ignoring her my brain has just (laughs) developed an extremely strong filter because she'll start talking and i won't do anything i'll be zoomed in i don't even realize she's doing it and then she'll say hey babe and i'll look up and i'm like hey yeah what's going on and she's like wow like i was just talking to you for five minutes and like you didn't even like recognize me and then i said hey babe and then you zoned in right you pulled my focus And now I can focus on you and we can talk about whatever you want. And in return, I'm doing the same thing. So it gave us a way that we can communicate better by recognizing that the brain is just going to do what it wants to do, right? We're not really in control of the brain because the brain's kind of in control of us. So once we understand that, you know, if we want to have focus and we want people to be able to hit the record button on their data drive, we, we first have to set a comfortable environment and we have to make sure it's free of distraction. That is really a key in learning anything. It's even a key in just communication. But if we want to make sure that we're heard and understood, they have to focus. The other part of that is it really blew the doors off the idea that we can multitask. And right. we can't. No, we don't no multitask. We task switch. and there's a lot of research into why uh, task switching, if you're good at it is a good thing and if you're bad at it is a bad thing. Um, Britt will call this um, Swiss tasking. in her example, she likes to use Swiss cheese because you 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 jump from task to task, but you know if you're trying to, write an email and listen to a conference call, you're either focused on the email or you're focused on the conference call. But if you're switching between both, you're not doing either one of those well. So there's holes, there's gaps. Um, There's times where I'll go back and read an email and there's just whole sentences missing (laughs) because I had my focus pulled. And so even though we know about it, it's really hard to work around it. And task switching, you know, the human brain is developed... In such a way that it's it's chemically dependent on things. So when we jump from task to task, we have to reorientate ourselves to that task, and that takes chemicals. That takes brain uh, juice, as I like to call it. When you jump from task to task, it depletes those chemicals. If you think about a day where you jumped around from seventeen different tasks and you really didn't get anything accomplished, but you feel exhausted, there's a reason for that. Because so you're worn out. Every time you jump from task to task and you pull that concentration, not only does it take time to come back and you have to refocus and reconcentrate, it's depleting your brain chemicals. And your brain eats up like 20% uh, of your calories. I mean, that's, <laughs> it really will wear you out. Uh, it's also why the brain tries to cheat. It tries to find ways to do things easier because it's constantly uh, trying to find a way to save you energy. That's a survival tactic. The example I use for that is driving to work. You know, the first time you ever drive someplace new, you're checking your GPS and you're looking for landmarks and, you know, you're really dialed in. But the hundredth time you drive to work, you don't even remember that you hit the exit. You're halfway right. to work before you even remembered that, you know, like I had to make this turn and look for that big tree and all that stuff. And that's your brain just going to sleep. It's like, I got this. I've done this a hundred times. And when they've done studies on, on rats and on people, when you're learning a new activity, your brain spikes the whole time. It's active. It's actively engaged the whole time you're learning something new. But by the hundredth time you do a repetitive task, it spikes at the beginning. It recognizes, it knows what it's doing, and it flatlines. so that's complacency and in some places complacency is good and in some places complacency gets you in trouble if you think about the person on an assembly line who just kind of sits mm-hmm. there like a robot and just throws and then randomly they'll just grab a whatever they're making. Let's call it a peep, right, or a, a widget. They'll they'll see a widget that doesn't quite match the filter and they just throw it out. And they're just you, you you know. And somebody watching that for the first time, like, wow, how do they do that? Well, they do it because they've been doing it a million times a day right. for over their and whole over. career, right? But they're not one hundred percent. They're going to miss one every once in a while, and that's because people aren't perfect. So, any questions about this or scrum yeah, multi- things you want to add?
0: I do that the multitasking stuff. You, as you know, I kind of throw you to the fire in the CSM. We do a, a little exercise that makes the point that people aren't good at multitasking or, or even context switching, which like you pointed out, it really is. You know, when I throw three different projects at people simultaneously and it's like, oh. and then you even saw some of the reactions, right? People were like, this is every day of my life. This is this is what happens to me at work. It's like the boss thinks I can be time-sliced across three completely different projects. And it's like, well, there's a lot of reasons why that just isn't effective. And so some of the advice I try to give people if they're like, yep, I hear you. And Josh, thanks for arming me with all this data. How do I get my leaders to understand this? You know, I try to flip it around and, and put it from the leader's perspective because if they really think it's productive, we have to show them it's not. And I'd like to point out, all you did is give people a built-in excuse. What? No, I didn't. Sure you did. If, if you break their focus and ask them to go check on Project B when they were just working on Project A, well, I'm going to have to get back to you. Well, how is Project B? Well, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you. So then now all of a sudden the leaders are like, oh, I don't like that. No, ex- you know, I want no excuses. I don't like that excuse thing. Stop. You know, giving people all these things that are all priority and do at once because it's not effective. If you want, if you want people to be productive, let them focus. So that that's one of our Scrum values: is focus. So this it aligns perfectly with some of the behavior change that we're looking for when we adopt Scrum.
1: Yeah, when we teach, we have an error reduction course that we built here, and when we teach it, we tell them, "Look, your brain can only focus or concentrate for X amount of time, and it's going to flatline." And we don't try to teach them not to do that because that would be impossible. We teach them to recognize factors that allow them to know they've lost focus so they can check back in. You know, just look around the room for a minute or reset your focus. And, you know, they're doing production work for six and a half hours a day. Mm. So every 15 or 20 minutes, you know, like in between when you're making a task, which just stop, look out the window, let the brain... Relax for a second, so that you have a better re-engagement. On average, you know we've seen a reduction across the board of errors by seventy-five percent. Um, the last group that I pulled, one of the participants, his errors went down by eighty-three percent. Just understanding that your brain's going to do it, whether you want it to or not. No matter how right. much I don't want to lose focus, the brain's like, yeah, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do what I do, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how it's wired. So it's it's really neat to kind of take the responsibility for their brain going to sleep on them off their shoulders but but then reestablishing that you are responsible for getting back into the groove right it's not yes. your fault your brain goes to sleep but it's your it's your responsibility to recognize when it does and then get back into what are you do about it? task yeah. mode yeah so and the strategies on them um, much like we put it on the developers to solve problems at their level this is one of those where i can't tell you how your brain's going to do that you guys need to figure out a solution for that yeah, you know, but we have some tips and tricks that they can do, like looking out the window or taking a couple of deep breaths, um, readjusting their position in their chair, Standing. things like
0: that. So yeah, I always tell people just uh, stand, sit down, whatever stretch, give yourself a stretch, whatever you need to do.
1: Yeah, and that leads into a whole other science of how activity really fuels brain engagement. Mm-hmm. Like sitting in a chair all day is the absolute worst thing you can do for your brain. It's terrible what do we ask kids to do all day <laughs>
0: run around go to recess <laughs>
1: Run around the recess you know the there are schools that they change classrooms throughout the day to, just to get them up and moving around just because that physical activity reinvigorates their brain to learning so there's mm-hmm. a lot of neat again a lot of neat things out there um, that we can't cover here so how this plays into focus and learning is that if you if you give them focus and you establish urgency. And urgency will go to the plasticity, right? If if you have focus, but there's no urgency in learning, how much of this are you really going to pick up? How important is it to you? And adults can make that decision. Adults are can very much say, oh, this is very important to me, and then you have their focus. And to that, you know, if they care about it, then they're going to pay attention. And if they pay attention, they're going to concentrate. If they concentrate, they'll understand. They'll have a better chance of understanding. And if they understand, that will go into their memory, and they'll be able to apply what they learn. The reverse is true. If I've been in class for 15 minutes, and then I tell you what's important, you're not going to remember what I talked about 15 minutes ago, and now you're going to get scared. So not only did I not engage you from the beginning now i've put you in a fear state now i've killed any ability that you could have to actually walk away or pay attention or learn this because they don't care they're not going to pay attention they're not going to understand and they're not going to be able to apply or put it into their memory so that's where like a scrum master being a facilitator making it easier right on them if we can set that tone and create a comfortable environment for them to share ideas and problem solve you're going to have a much better result because their brains is going to be operating at higher capacity
0: and this virtual stuff doesn't make that easier i think it only adds a level of complexity and lots of little distractors or shiny objects for people like you said their inbox or their emails or if they even have that notification turned on while they're trying to focus either in a meeting or a training class or whatever right on screen there's lots of distractors
1: Oh yeah. The, the, I mean, a computer is a phenomenal tool. I mean, if you think about a computer when they were first developed, they took up rooms in buildings. I mean, they were huge. Now computers fit in your pocket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, your phone is a computer. You can take your office with you wherever you go, but it's on us to make those decisions on whether we engage or not. And I see my boss do it all the time and I get on her for it. Um, we'll be having a conversation about trying to problem solve something and there'll be a ping on her computer and you'll hear it. And she'll instantly focus on the ping because she feels like she's got to answer it. I have those things turned off. Mm -hmm. Like I'll check my emails every 15, 20 minutes. I won't check my email every time an email comes in because the expectation isn't that we respond to an email immediately, but if you put that on yourself, right? And so she'll get focused. And she's like, I'm still listening to you. Go ahead and keep talking while I type this email. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no you're not listening. I can come back. I can come back or you can stop what you're doing. But if I talk to you for 10 minutes while you're writing this email, you're never going to hear me. And then when we go to problem solve this later, without fail, I I, I forgot what we were talking about. Or I don't remember you telling me that. No, I know you don't <laughs> because she's right? focused and we teach this and she knows it and she still does it. And so it's like, you know, you got to kind of pull them out of it. Um, so to that, we get into, you know, the adult learning. And this is where, this is really where, when I say adults are special needs learners, this comes into play. At some point in time, we all have had to develop self-directed learning styles, at some point, we got off the rails of our educational system. If you think about kindergarten, even through high school, and I'm a big proponent of the struggles that they they do in high school preparing kids for college, is that we don't teach self-direction. Everything has a time box. Everything has a very set way that they're going to do something in their learning, and they teach to the test. And then when you go to college, all of a sudden, that whole support structure is gone, all of a sudden you're on your own and it's not just a lot of times it's not just you're on your own and learning you're on your own and figuring out how to take care of yourself. You're figuring out how to create a schedule so you get to class on time and how do you feed yourself and how do I do laundry? I mean, a lot of kids fail in their first year of college because they're not just learning more advanced knowledge and skills. They're also trying to figure out how to do life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm always a big proponent of not trying to learn too many things at the same time. It pulls your focus, but as you sh- do that struggle, you come up with your self directed way that you like to learn. There's just you know, I like to turn on music, I don't like to turn on music, I like to dim the lights, I like it really bright, I want to sit outside. Whatever it is that you do to cope with the stresses of learning is your self directed method, and everybody's is different. We go back to the brain wiring how you've learned that that wiring of your neurons and when you develop tasks and skills is different. And so, how, as a learner, as a facilitator, do I reach a room of people that might have very contradictory styles? Right. And I think some scrum masters probably struggle with that. I'll do a huddle and five of my folks get it, but maybe one of them never does. Mm -hmm. That means I have to adapt my style.
0: And even the team themselves, you know, because when we talk about a team of developers as part of a scrum team, you know, what the scrum guide's big on is self-management, self-direction. Well, if they struggle with that, or to your point, if they're all different and they haven't figured out each other's styles, they get a lot to talk about when they're thrown together as a team. It's like, how are we going to come to consensus? How are we going to do work with each other? Because it's up to us, right? We don't want to enforce stuff we don't want to micromanage or say here's how you're going to do it because it's a whole different set of behavioral problems if they resist but it's like oh you're a self-managed team you're a self-directed team oh we don't know what that means (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. And why don't they know what that means? I and mean, if you think of a standard corporate environment where you're told day in and day out what you're going to do, and then all of a sudden we're going to go to this scrum methodology of, of workflow, now you all get to figure it out. I just spent the last 20 years of my life not having to figure it out. I have no frame of reference in which I'm supposed to do this. And you know, uh, I just went through this with, with my management leadership group. They wanted um, a group of people to learn something new, and so they just threw them in the deep end and said, figure it out. And every time they ask a question, they say, you're supposed to be figuring that out. But they've spent the last four years not figuring out anything. And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this isn't how you do development. But to them, maybe that was their experience. And they're looking back on their life and saying, well, I turned out okay. Yeah, but how much struggle did you have to go through to get there? And why are we making mm-hmm. them struggle? Life inherently has its own struggles. We don't have to make extra ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Let's not add more struggle just for the sake of struggling. It doesn't make any sense. Let's give them a task, make sure that they're doing the task correctly, and check in every so often. If you use the kind of the sprint, right? The first time you do something, you don't really set a time box on a sprint, it's one to four weeks, and you figure out how it's going to go for the first time time to set the baseline. So do that. But you check back in. You don't let them wither on the vine for four months and then come back and say, well, you did that totally wrong. And here's how you could have made your life better Mm -hmm. for the last four months. Whenever I'm developing, I give them a small task and I check in in a week and I see how they're doing. And then I'll give, based on that feedback, I'll give them a different or maybe more difficult task, but then I'll check in in two weeks. And then once I feel like they're kind of good to go, we call it a bungee cord. Once I feel like they they're, can bungee out farther, I'll check in less. And then once I feel like they have the task, I may never check in again. I'm like, well, you've got this. You come find me when you have problems. Mm-hmm. And that teaches self-direction. You know, those little successes build confidence. That confidence sets them at ease. Because nobody ever shows up to work and says, I want to do a bad job today. I want to do a good job. But if they're confused and if they don't know what the definition of done is, Mm -hmm. then it's scary. Because how do I know I'm doing a good job?
0: Well, and And, even newer scrum masters who have not picked up on the people aspect of this. I always call it the people tip. I say, you know, scrum masters need people skills, people skills, more people skills. You know, oh, well, my job is just in the events and that's it. Uh, no, most of your job is going to happen outside of the events. And especially if you have to invest in figuring out different learning styles, different triggers, and get all these folks to work well together, that's going to take the care and feeding that you described more so at the beginning. And in the best cases, they get it and need somebody less and less, but sometimes they may not. You know, I, I had a graduate say, well, doesn't the Scrum Master kind of work themselves out of a job? And it's like, haven't seen that happen once, but I've only been doing this for 17 years. <laughs> you know, when you talk about a corporate environment and how, you know, people leave companies or people join companies. And then there's all the organizational stuff and the product owner stuff, not just the developers that the scrum master has to be doing these same things with. So it's like, Sounds good in theory that they could work themselves out of a job. Haven't seen it once.
1: I will tell people all the time, I work hard to work myself out of a job. Mm -hmm. I wish that could happen. I wish that we could create a structure that would never, ever change. And then once I've trained everybody to the best of their ability to do this job, they wouldn't need me anymore, except for everything changes all the time. So Especially in corporate
0: America or like knowledge environments like we both work in. Unlike that assembly line that you talked about, where if the brain does fall into that complacency, well, in knowledge work or new product development, complacency usually isn't okay, right? Usually, we talk about continuous improvement or the next release or the next big thing, and so you don't really have that luxury either.
1: Oh yeah, and and, and you know when we produce, right, we're we're taking things that are complex, right, that have a lot of interconnecting moving parts, and the outcome is highly unpredictable, and we're trying to make it maybe. Complicated, where it's still the same interconnected moving parts, but then the outcomes are highly predictable. And then you try to move that into business as usual. So you're trying to take something new, take the complexity out of it, make it complicated, because at least that's a little more simple, a little more repeatable. And then once it becomes repeatable, you can make it efficient, then you can make it BAU. And then it will live in BAU until the next new thing comes along. I mean, how often does things update. How often are there upgrades? How often do clients change their minds on things? I was on an airplane not too long ago and I I ended up sitting next to a guy who sells energy drinks. He is the VP of sales nationally for energy drinks. And I said, how come every other day It's like a new limited release energy drink, (laughs) right? Every day, it's like there's a brand new one coming out, a new flavor, a new thing. And he said, because that's the market. Everybody wants the new. Everybody's looking for that next new great thing. And so they're always going to do that. And then they look at their research and they say, which one did people buy the most? And that's the one that then becomes the one that is on the shelf all the time. And then the ones that didn't make the cut, they get put away. The I think Lay's potato chips does that. They have these these competitions where the one flavor that gets bought the most is the one that ends up sticking around. Whether it be you know the super cheesy jalapeno or the chicken and waffle, or you know the kimchi flavored inspired one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you had three different kinds of potato chips. It's just Lay's were Lay's. Just. Plain old. <laughs> Maybe Pringles little were, old. <laughs> Pringles were Pringles. You had regular sour cream and onion. That was it, right? Now you walk down the grocery store, look at how many different Pringles there are. It's like pizza Buffalo wing. It's like they're just throwing everything out there and seeing what sticks because everybody wants the new. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back on to onto track. Adult learners will also accept responsibility for their learning. Much like how I ended up in Scrum. I was like, you know, I'm, I, there's I, everybody talks about this agile thing and I'm really, I'm really curious about it. So I'm going to sec- accept responsibility for my learning and I'm going to go out and I'm going to take a class or I'm going to do a course. If they say there's going to be a change in the system and everybody needs to learn it to keep your job, well, I'm going to be focused. And I'm going to put a lot of work into that because I want to keep my job. I'm going to accept the responsibility for my learning. If if you don't go do your e-learnings to stay in compliance, right? Uh, mm-hmm. For some industries, that's on you. You can't blame anybody for that. You had three months to do it. And so they know that I'm going to do it because I don't want a nasty gram from my manager because I didn't do my e-learning. But, but adult learners have to understand the why. That really, and then that's, we're back to focus. They've got to know why they're there. Their time is limited. They have so many projects and so many deadlines and so much, so many due dates. Mm -hmm. I got to know why this is important to me. I got to know what's in it for me. But once they do and they get put at ease, then their brain can learn. When I was teaching um, brand ambassadors how to pitch virtual reality technology for Facebook for their Oculus VR, um, they were very specific VR was so new. It really wasn't about sales. It was about getting people to be comfortable with the technology,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what it is and what it does. So they created a script, a four to five minute scripted event. You know, they wanted people to be on script to hit the safety features, to make sure that nobody got injured because Facebook knew that if somebody got injured doing a Facebook demo, they were going to complain about it on Facebook. (laughs) That's not good branding
0: is not good for the brand.
1: (laughs) So my very first class, everybody showed up and they were extremely nervous. When I read the room, I said, Hey guys, welcome to class. We flew everybody in nationwide to St. Louis. It was a centralized location. And we taught this class in person, because if we're going to be teaching people skills, we can't do it over a computer. Kudos to Facebook for that. That was a really good decision. But the class was extremely nervous. I'm looking at 30 faces and I see deer in headlights across all of them. And I'm like, Hmm. Interesting. So I started teaching the class and I started getting their feedback. And what I realized was that their managers told them that they had to have this script memorized front, back, left, and right, or they weren't going to get their certification and they were going to lose their job.
0: Wow. That's some fear. (laughs) That's a fear factor.
1: (laughs) But that's not what Facebook wanted. Facebook really wanted a friendly experience. They wanted them to stay on script enough to hit the safety features and to do it in a particular order, but they didn't want it word for word. They didn't want them canned robots just repeating. They could have got a robot to do that. So my next class, and for the rest of the classes, when they sat down, I said, hey, everybody, we're here to learn how to do this experience. It is not an expectation that you know the script forwards, backwards, left, right, upside down. And the entire room had a collected sigh. Everybody just went, ah. <laughs> That's not what my manager told me. I understand that's not what your manager told me, but I'm your instructor. I'm telling you, since I'm the one that's going to pass or fail you, that I'm not looking for you to hit every word. I'm looking that you get the meat and potatoes of this, that you hit the key safety features and there's only four. And as long as you hit those key safety features and you basically do this in order, let it be your style. You know, Be yourself. That's what they want. They want this to be fun and exciting and they want you to be yourself right so that everybody can have a comfortable and fun experience and it absolutely changed the entire direction of the rest of the training and so that was just my that was my script that's what i did i the very first thing once i turned that powerpoint on i was like you guys don't have to do this like your manager told you and they're like because it's hard to do script experience there's a reason there's professional actors out there Um, yeah right um and so yeah putting them at ease just meant that they were just much better learners. And there was maybe of the 500 people that I taught, there was maybe two the entire time that I didn't sign off on that just didn't get it. And they didn't get it. Not because they didn't get the script. They didn't know how to be social.
0: Oh yeah. They know
1: how to talk to people. They were very skittish and jumpy. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not putting my name on that one. Right. To use that example. Also, uh, you know, I was one trainer of 30 people and that's not good odds, right? You really want to keep it kind of a four to one ratio with adult learners because of their needs. What I did is I created group training activities where they mm-hmm. taught themselves, right? Like I, you know, I put them in groups of four and five and I said, one person's going to be the customer. One person's going to be the brand ambassador. One person's going to read through the script just to make sure that they hit the the points and the other two just kind of hover around like we're standing in a Best Buy. Mm-hmm. Be the audience that's going to be there kind of watching you. And then I would walk around between the two rooms and just kind of observe. And they really helped each other out. And, and adults are really good at this. They're really good at helping each other out when you put them in small groups like that right, with yeah. a common goal.
0: Totally with the scrum training and the virtual is hard. And even though we have breakout rooms and we can put people in the simulation, just what you said about walking around, I miss being able to walk around joining the virtual rooms just is kind of creepy. You know what I mean? Like, because people will say, well, the instructor can float around and join the breakout room, but then they don't know when you're coming. They don't know, you know, and then when I've done it, I I know I'm interrupting something and probably derailed something good. So I've taken the stance that if you really need me to tap in there, you can notify me. There's like a little notify instructor and I can pop in, but I, I don't do the uh, virtual walk around because it just disrupts. It just disrupts them. This virtual thing has been really hard to make these uh, environments collaborative.
1: Yeah, I noticed the same thing. When I was going, we had two different rooms, four stations set up. And when I went around, I would hear them doing a great job and then they would see me and freeze. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, okay. So I quit doing it as much. I would maybe make one loop just to make sure that everybody was still there and they mm-hmm. were on, on track. But I wouldn't walk around as much once I realized that that. Was disruptive to the learning because it was locking them up and it was messing up their flow. And yep. I really wanted them to find that flow. Now, when I did the certification, I did a complete. I pulled up a chair and I set it down and I got my clipboard out and I stared at them. And they're like, "Oh my god, you're making me nervous." I'm like, "Well, that's the point. Like, I am trying to make you nervous. I want to see how you do under pressure. You've had 12 hours to practice this. Right? I, mm-hmm. I want to add a little bit of pressure, but you get multiple attempts." So if you botch this one, you can do it again. You actually, you can do this until the bus shows up to take you to the airport. As long as you <laughs> give me one good run, I'll sign off on you and you can go about it. And everybody passed. Sometimes it took two or three times, but if, if you tried hard and you were hitting those key points, you know, you were good to go. The, uh, and most people did a lot better when they got to Best Buy. Once they got in there and nobody was watching and they were the subject matter experts now, they killed it. And all mm-hmm. of the feedback that we got from the mystery shops and things is that they were doing a fantastic job. So, and, and that's what we really like to see. And they, you know, a lot of them even said, once I'm not here and I'm not under all this pressure, I know I'll do amazing. So it was really great. With child learners, that's why it's different. They're adult dependent. They show up to class every day and they look at the teacher and the teacher is everything. Mm-hmm. And they are 100%, you know, I didn't know it because the teacher didn't tell me or they always want to blame the teacher for everything. Right. And then because they're not responsible for their education. We put it on the teachers. And I think a lot of people from the pandemic realize just how much teachers do. And you know, we talk about how they don't get enough credit, but really they're like, wow, this is hard. You can trick a kid into just about anything depending on their age range. You know, Little kids, you can tell them anything and they're going to believe it. One of the biggest struggles I've had over the last couple of years is teaching my kids sarcasm. I will just say something totally off the cuff and they'll be like, no way. Oh, wait. Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> I'm like, I am being sarcastic. yes. yes. Um, <laughs> you know, and now they're starting to get me, which is really fun. Like, I'll be like, what? You just, oh, you got me, you know? So it's nice to see them first recognize it and then being able to apply it back, even though it, it causes some issues sometimes where conversations go a little off the rails. That's the difference. And the reason that we call this out, the adult learning and the child learning, is that sometimes adults are still stuck in a child learning model. Mm-hmm. Structure dictates behavior. And I teach this a lot in my leadership courses. The structure that we craft for people dictates their behavior. And if you look at something like Scrum or even Lean Six Sigma or or XP, it's a different structure than Waterfall. And why is it a different structure? Because we want a different set of behaviors.
0: Right. And that's why I get on, you know, Scrum Master candidates so much for falling into the trap of being an adult daycare provider. Because, you know, you shamelessly saw me use my video of my son when he was (laughs) four and a half learning self management. And I'm like, yeah, who's moving the cards? Oh, yeah, he is. Okay, Scrum Masters. So stop putting your hands all over everybody's work. You're not their adult daycare provider and you're taking their learning opportunity away. You're taking their self direction away. What are you doing? Well, I don't know what to do with my. Well, okay, that's a different conversation. Let's talk about what you need to do and what you don't need to do. But we set up this structure because we want them to behave differently. Don't take that away from them.
1: <laughs> so it's like, no stop one yet. That. <laughs> And you have to learn by doing, and that comes into different learning types. Now, I will put a caveat in here. There are a ton of different theories around learning types. But for my new training, for for my new trainers for getting into adult learning, I I break it down to the basic three. You got auditory, kinesthetic, and visual. What I like about the big three is it's just easier to understand. You know, your auditory learners are those people who learn by hearing, by hearing. And by, by reading, people often confuse visual learners by reading a book. You're actually auditorially learning because you're reading it in your head. You're, you hear it in your head. The visual learners are somebody who watches somebody do something. I have a, One of my brothers is great at this. He will watch somebody do something one time. And then he can do it perfect. And that's an amazing skill set to have. Then you have your kinesthetic learners, like which I am, which are absolutely the most frustrating learners that you can deal with because they have to learn by (laughs) doing. I always tell people, I got to get in there. I got to break it six times before I actually learn it and then can apply it. But they're also some of your strongest um, facilitators because they had to struggle so much to learn it that they really know it. And they can break it down a little bit more simply. While there's the big three, the hearing, the seeing, and the doing, often people are a mix. You don't really just have one, and it can be situational. So sometimes you're, if you think about it kind of on a spectrum or kind of as a blended model, you might be more kinesthetic visual. Like I have to see it, I have to do it. Listening to a lecture isn't going to do it for me. And some people are maybe more like listening and watching, and then they've got it. And sometimes you have to do all three. And it really just depends on the context in which you're doing it. it to me, it would seem to be hard to teach computer programming if you weren't actually doing computer programming. It may take all three styles to get it there. And then as a facilitator, as, a, as an educator, how do you, in a class of 30 people, meet everybody's style? Yeah. Right? How do you do? Des- design a training or an event that hits all three styles in a way that makes it work. And that can be troublesome. It's important to know that they're out there so that you can modify based on your feedback. I designed the best training that I possibly can to hit all three styles. And then I have to watch my learners and I have to talk to them. And we have to figure out if what I'm doing is reaching them.
0: And with in-person classes, definitely easier for, for our own team to do this. And then when we flipped to virtual oh, what a challenge. And uh, you're right on the the 30, our, our team has been really big on just saying no to some of those 30 person virtual classes, because it's a nightmare, not only for me as the educator, but I'm sure for these learners. So I've just gone to smaller and we are going to have a mix of this stuff. You're going to do a simulation. You're going to get in a small group. I got to get you working with each other because it's just, it, it's a stretch for everybody. And Sadly, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. You know, we're baby stepping back into some in-person stuff with where we are in the world, but I think a lot of organizations are also recognizing a lot of cost savings. So I don't think uh, some of the virtual or work from home is going away anytime soon. So we got to get people <laughs> no. more comfortable in this environment too.
1: Yeah, and as as we you know as we've globalized everything. It, it really becomes more imperative that we do that, but we have to make it smaller with just you and me in the screen. We can more easily read each other's body language and body language is a bulk of our communication tone, body language, things like that. They talk to us. And when you have 30 little boxes, you can't read body language. It's impossible. Right. And you, you—if you were trying to read everybody's body language, you wouldn't be able to focus on the class that you were teaching. When you're doing stand-up training, as you scan the room as you're talking, you can pause and you can see the person who's like, "Are you okay? Like, what's going on?" It's like I totally just lost everything, um, and that's fine. That's what we want. We want to do those check-in moments. Um, I was working. I'm working with a new trainer right now that we just hired. She was getting ready to go do her training. Is her first training with her hat? You know, I'm a trainer now. I put my hat on. And my, uh, boss was there and we were talking to her and you could see her kind of start to really tense up and that caused us to pause and say, Hey, are you doing okay? So I'm really nervous. It's like, we could see that. <laughs> That's why we're checking in, you know, as much as we read body language, it's interpreted through our filter. So we need to make sure that we're checking in. We're not making assumptions because, you know, assumptions are bad. Oh yeah. You know What they say about so, those so when we're checking in you can listen for cues to figure out what style they are or where they are you know the, your auditory folks will use auditory language like that doesn't sound right or it sounds good or that's music to my ears or they will use key phrases such as visual I can't picture it or maybe I need to see it differently or I just need to take a look at it and those are your visual people and that's how you you tease out those clues to figure out how you modify your approach to reach that learner generally I try to get eight percent of my learners through a class without much one-on-one but there are people that just won't get it so when you're having that one-off conversation when when we're conversing we listen to those things for kinesthetic it's it's more physical Uh, you know are you painting what i'm priming are you picking up what i'm putting down how does that feel those are all clues to tell you what style you are and for that person it's just hey let's go over here and start doing it right Mm -hmm. talking to you isn't going to help showing you is not going to help let's get your hands on it and, and we'll get her done. That's what helps that facilitation. So if you use your experience, if you're in with a group of developers and they're having conflict, what is the conflict? Is it an understanding? Is it implying? And if it comes down to the learning part, they're just not getting it. How do we get them there? How do we bridge the gap? And it'll it'll come down to their learning style.
0: Nice. In the last couple of minutes that we have, what are some final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners about working with adults or even you know tackling this adult learning hurdle that we could have?
1: I think the one thing with adults, and I think this really matches up well with Scrum, is it's about the conversations. It's about getting their feedback and really listening to their feedback. Because all feedback has value. Feedback may not always be delivered the way you want it. Conversation doesn't always go the way you, you might like it to go. Maybe the work choice or the setting. But if you truly listen to what their concerns are, if you can get them to relax and have that conversation, then you can really start to close the gaps on their struggles and help them problem solve. Um. Just today, I had a, a student from one of my leadership courses. Uh, I think he went through almost a year ago. And I always tell him, doors always open, reach out to me if you need anything. And he he called me and said, I'm struggling. I don't know what I want to do with this job, but I don't think it's right for me. I said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was like, I don't understand. It's like, I was 32 years old before I figured out what I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. right i just couldn't figure out what i wanted to be when i grew up so what do you want to be and he's like i I don't know and i was like well tell me about your job what do you like about your job and he started talking about the people and he started talking about the setting and the freedom i was like none of that's your job that's what you like about the environment tell me about your what do you like about your job nothing yikes that's great i love the openness tell me you know that's what we need to know so you don't like anything about your job fantastic think about jobs you've worked in the past and what job did you really like? I really liked customer service. I really liked interacting with customers and trying to provide the best customer experience. And I just don't get that because I'm in a tech job. Fantastic. Let's go, to the, let's go to our job postings and let's figure out what's out there in customer service. And immediately there was a job that just spoke to him. And he's like, oh my God, that's my job. I'm like, we'll apply for it. Nice. You know, it, nice. it's as easy as we wanted to be well we really appreciate
0: you sharing all these tips and tricks with us uh on our on our podcast today and maybe we'll have you back because i th- feel like we could keep going we can we can dive into some more aspects of
1: this oh I, i'd love to and then if anybody watching this has any questions you know put them down in the chat and that'll kind of fuel maybe the next steps for this all right thanks josh thank you take care